Welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast published by TableXLI. I'm Noel Rappin. Each episode of Tech Done Right focuses on people in tech talking about interesting problems. Today, we're talking about careers and career growth. Our panel today includes Pete Brooks, a software developer at TableXLI, and Brandon Hayes, uh, who asked me to introduce him as my friend. My friend, Brandon Hayes. <laughs> then it sounds like I have friends. That's good. That's good. I, friend is fair. We're friends. <laughs> I like you. You like me, right? We're friends. Yeah, sure. of course. Yes. Hi. <laughs> the more I explain it, the faker and faker it sounds. No, we're, so we're good. Part. At no point have I ever wished you specific harm. <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah. So, Pete, do you want to tell, say a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to be at TableXI? Yeah. So now I've been at TableXI for two years, which is crazy. It went by really fast. And this was my first development job. Before that, I was in college studying philosophy, and I did dev boot camp for 18 weeks or whatever that is, and luckily ended up here, and it's been great. Uh, and Brandon, what are you doing these days? I am working at a startup uh, until recently ran a software consultancy and kind of got burned out, left that, and now I'm just working as a line-level developer in a startup, which means that that's not really what you do. You wind up trying to get a company off the ground with a bunch of people, and I really like kind of doing the barn raising phase of companies. So been there about three weeks. Uh, the company's called Ojo. It's based here in Austin. And it's been a lot of fun so far to kind of pick something up that's pretty new and, and try to grow it. So I get to take a from from being a business owner to uh, just being a member of a team where somebody else owns the business is both really gratifying. It's fun. And also it's a little like a vacation uh, after running a business. So yeah, is it going to still feel like a vacation? And uh... no, no, that doesn't that doesn't last forever. That's probably the honeymoon phase. <laughs> Uh, but it's a lot of fun. It's a good company, and, and I'm really digging it. So I wanted to talk to you guys together. Brandon has done a couple of great blog posts and conference talks about career growth and being a senior developer and uh, related topics. And Pete, I think, also has really interesting insight about what it's like to be a new developer and how you go about growing your skills and transitioning from being a new developer to being a more experienced developer and what that actually means. So... I guess I want to start by talking about, we talk about these, we have this kind of weird level distinctions. We talk about junior developers and senior developers or, or mid-level developers or, or mid-level seniors or who knows how fine they cut that apple. Um, I have come to really hate the term junior developer. Um, I'm developing an irrational distaste of it. What do you see as the distinction between, like, what makes somebody uh, a junior developer or senior developer? Like, I see job listings that say, like, you know, senior developer with, like, four years of experience. And, and that makes me, like, wonder, like, I've, I've got, like, 18 years of experience. And it makes me kind of wonder what kind of, like, what I am. Like, ancient. Super senior. Ancient, super annuated. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, Brandon, where do you see, what do you see the distinction there? Uh, that's a good question. It's a sucky question. And I think the problem with being a software developer, I think, uh, Pete, you've now been in both fields where you wind up chopping words up to the point where they're meaningless. I view software development and philosophy as related, uh, related in this way that your, your job is to take a word and wring all the meaning out of it until words are just like completely meaningless pieces of like of sound that come out of people's mouths. That sounds like a lot of philosophy at least. <laughs> And, and, and software, unfortunately, has the same thing. You, you wind up turning on the words like you wind up hating every word that you use because they wind up becoming so overloaded. What I would like to try to focus on is, well, like we, we can keep poking at these definitions, but the goal is not to define the words in themselves or the terms, but to define the concepts. And then we can kind of like, dis, you know, you get to kind of decide what terms work best for you in those cases, uh, which is not the clearest way to communicate. But we have hopefully a little bit of time to be able to do that. 
So what's the meaningful concept then? Like you had said earlier, uh, so Pete, like, how would you classify yourself if somebody said, hey, I need to hire a person to do a job and that job involves software. Do you have a sense of what you would classify that as? Yeah, I'm not sure what I would say. I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of jobs that I would be able to do independently and feel confident. I certainly am not a senior developer. I'm not an entry-level developer anymore. I don't know if junior comes after entry-level or if those mean the same thing. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We could just decide. So I, I think Pete is going for adjectiveless software developer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is really going to get me hired. <laughs> yeah. If you're willing to accept the definition of software developer, which even that could be contested, there's nothing that we use as terminology that is nailed down well enough to last forever. I think you, you I mean, there, we're arguing over whether what we do is engineering. Uh, so software developer is a pretty safe little harbor there where we can say, hey, we're all software developers. We all generally do most of the same things in a broadly defined way. And so when you define things this broadly, it causes you to sort of define things sort of broadly. So because what we do is such a broad set of skills, it makes it really difficult to put definition around. I look for jobs that just say person with a laptop. I can type code that executes sometimes. And words. I type words and code. Now what I do is I configure Webpack all day. And so I don't know if that counts. I'm a junior Webpack engineer. If I went on, if I, how many job sites could I go and find junior Webpack engineer as an actual listing that people are looking for? Uh, probably an upsetting amount. <laughs> Um, but Pete said something that I want to I want to call back to because I think that there was a lot of value to what you said was working independently. I feel like working independently is the only anchor concept. And when I say independently, even that crap, even that is is malleable. But the ability to take the lead on something and the ability to produce a result without requiring a ton of guidance. And so to me, that is a incline where you're able to do more and more independent work. And that doesn't mean solo work, but independent in that you require less input and you're able to provide more input. So as a person in any, I, I would say broadly defined in our industry, as a person is able to produce output, whether that's features or documentation or, but the, the idea is to be able to work somewhat independently where you require guidance. And, and so I started putting definitions around how frequently and intense does this person require guidance is where we kind of broadly drew the strokes of here's what a junior is, here's what mid-level is, and here's what senior is. And to us, uh, when I say us, I mean, when I was at Frontside and making these hiring decisions and in the hiring decisions I make now, I define senior as the ability to work independently and to act on the supply side of this feedback where they're providing feedback to other people. And so it's not a smooth incline because some, there are some areas where you're going to have, you know, more ability to provide insight and there's going to be areas where you need more input. But broadly speaking, over the course of weeks and months, I think I had previously said if a person requires input in order to get their job done multiple times per day, that's probably a person you could pretty easily classify as as relatively junior in their position or relatively, I don't know, I don't have a better word than junior right now. So maybe we I can know, define that. I don't that. have a better word than it either, but I hate it. Yeah. And I don't think entry level is any better. It's like, it's one of those things where every new word suddenly becomes more and more pejorative. Mm -hmm. uh, the, just the more it gets used. I don't know. Yeah, it, it winds up becoming a tool sort of for you build the, t the word to be a shortcut and then you use the shortcut to stop thinking. Right. Can we throw a couple of juniors at that? Yeah. That's as if you've worked in a consultancy, throwing a couple of juniors at something is definitely a rough thing to hear uh, because it's dismissive as to what we do for every day and the people who are going to do it. It's a, it's what you call a win-win if you're in the consultancy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you bring that up, you know, throw a couple of juniors at it. That sounds to me like, you know, those, that's an accounting word. 
Yeah, it's kind of an HR word. Like, uh, you know, there's this weird interface where we, you know, Brandon knows what he wants as the owner of Frontside or the, you know, the person making the hiring decisions. And that gets filtered, especially in a larger company through some sort of HR process where they have to have a bucket because they have to know, you know, especially if the, you know, there's some non-technical person filtering resumes, you know, you have to set some sort of requirement and, and it's kind of hard to put on a resume. I only need guidance twice a day. Right. <laughs> Was able to make it through Tuesday without asking for help. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I, I want to uh, – I uh, that's just the measurement I use as a mentor, broadly speaking. But yes, that when you try to translate that to HR, the, the weird thing is you try to look for metrics as a way to measure progress. But as soon as you use it as a uh, reward tool, people will learn to game that. Well, that's a, that's a, like a long-standing social science. The more weight gets put on a particular metric, the less representative it is of what it's – trying to measure like that applies to all kinds of different things because people then the incentive to game it becomes strong. Yep. So what I want to do as an industry in kind of two parts is can we start to put some definition around what it means to progress and can we give people a little bit of a map so that they understand where they are in that progress. And if I can tell a little bit of a story, I, I told this story in the, the conference talk, but luckily statistically zero people watch conference talks. So, you know, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, I get to repeat this. So I, I recently met a guy named Alan Wurfsbrock. Uh, he is a like legendary class developer. He basically wrote the ES 2015 spec. He, he was one of the first implementers of small talk. Uh, he's a, you know, 45 year veteran of the industry and a really cool guy, amiable guy and really happy in the way that his career has shaped up. And he makes industry changing work as a result of what he does. And he helped kind of reset uh, my expectations as to what that means for developers. I, the first thing I want to do in order to have this conversation is perform a perspective reset. You've got to hit the reset button on this, on the perspective, because this is, I've fallen into this trap. Every person I've hired has fallen into this trap. Almost every senior developer with, you know, 10, 15 years of experience has fallen into this. And it is the idea that I have been in this industry now for five or 10 years. I should have had world-changing work by now. The impact I was going to have as a software developer, I should have already had, or I have failed. And it's because we're holding ourselves up in comparison to people that have had only five or 10 years of experience and are making like world-changing pieces of software, like you see a Yehuda Katz or Dan Abramov uh, in the JavaScript community, or you know people that create software that at a young age that, that winds up having a very large impact on the industry as a whole. And because that's visible and because we have access to them via Twitter, I think, uh, we wind up having this like direct comparison deal where we think that we should have accomplished that by now. And there's a lack of access to people that have had 25, 30, 40, 45 years of experience in our typical work environments. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of thinking, I don't see people that do this for 40 years. Therefore, this must not be a thing you do for 40 years. Yeah. As somebody who's climbing up to 20 years of experience, depending on how you count it in this field, the, the relative lack of people with 25 and 30 years of experience is starting to feel kind of eerie to me, honestly. <laughs> You're the last man standing, Noel. Why is that? Why is there a lack? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the stereotype is that older pro, old programmers become bad managers, mm -hmm. and then they be, they're no longer senior programmers. They become bad managers. I don't know that that's really true anymore. I, I don't really have a clear sense of, of, of what actually goes on there. Ask me again in five years when I'm a bad manager. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, there's the Occam's razor deal too, which is, you know, what's the simplest explanation to why people aren't here? Alan is the person that brought me up into the idea that it could be partly a self-fulfilling prophecy because I asked him this question. Like, why do you think there aren't more people with your level of experience still doing this every day? Why aren't there more people like Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham and Alan, people that that stay in the in the technical side of this industry? Where Where are they going first off and why? And as you know, the stereotype is that they kind of retire into management positions. The simple explanation is always look at what is rewarded. So what is the reward cycle like for a developer? And there's this logarithmic curve of, the, I think there's a couple of things that happen. And I've talked to people enough that I feel pretty confident in both of them. There's a logarithmic salary curve to what we do. Because the value that you produce as a software developer continues to go up as you progress in this industry. You're able to save days of development, then weeks of development, and then potentially millions of dollars and years of effort by making intelligent, wise knowledge work choices at certain stage of software projects. I think most software developers with a lot of experience know that the knowledge they acquire has the ability to make huge lasting differences on uh, software projects, which run into the millions of dollars and more often much more, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in the case of like healthcare.gov. You have clear examples of how experienced software developers and well-practiced process can save tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so you know that the value that, that you can produce is very high, but it also can be sort of difficult to quantify. But for some reason, the salary curve tends to level off as soon as you pay developers enough to not have to talk about money, because we hate that stuff. We hate talking about money. So as soon as your boss can get you to stop asking for raises, uh, they don't have to do that anymore. Whereas for salespeople, that curve stays real tight with the value that they know they produce. Maybe partially because sales is so unpleasant <laughs> that they go, hey, I did this much. But they, they know that they're also salespeople, right? It's very, sales is very quantifiable mm -hmm. you know, in a way that I saved you hundreds of millions of dollars by making a good decision. Is it's the old joke, you know, one thousand dollars to draw the axe, twenty five thousand dollars for the expertise to know where to draw the axe. Yep. I'll just give the punchline to a two minute joke. <laughs> That's a hard. It's hard value to see. So it is more difficult to quantify. The quantification would have to happen from people who don't like quantifying things, and we feel pretty lucky to be doing software development for a living because it's a more you know this is a this is a pretty fun job. Some days, other days not so much. <laughs> As a junior webpack engineer, you're <laughs> right. qualified. There, yeah, there are days where there may not be enough money to pay me to do some of that stuff. But but we don't talk about money. Where in in sales circles and marketing circles, money and currency is a uh, it's sort of like I t when I've run a business, I talk to people like it's like being a doctor and not being afraid of blood. You can't be afraid about talking about money and run a business. You'll your business will die just like you can't be afraid of blood. You, that's the stuff you got to keep inside the body. It's just stuff. Mm. And money is a taboo topic, I think, for a lot of software developers. And I don't want to get into like the social, even though I have beliefs about this, there are social justice aspects to this about whether, yeah. you know, who's engineering that or whatever. I don't think it's a grand sure. conspiracy. Yeah. I just think it winds up being. Uh, that we don't like talking about money and that winds up on the whole creating a logarithmic salary curve that levels off after a while where we don't as an industry know how to quantify additional value provided above a certain level. And so you go, well, I know how to quantify value produced by somebody who manages a team of a hundred people because that's an easy multiplier to make. Like if you can make a hundred software developers more effective as a manager, I can quantify that and I can pay you 
no longer on a logarithmic scale where it levels off, but on a on a at least a linear scale. Right. Well, that yeah, that's the that's the route. That's the route in. Often it's management. For other people, they say they don't want to do that and they go start a business. It reminds me a little bit. Um, I know people who are teachers, and one of the interesting things about being a teacher is if you are an ambitious teacher, you have a long term career dilemma, right? If you are like really ambitious and you want to be the best teacher, there's a limit to your value until you stop being a teacher. <laughs> There's a limit to your perceived value. It's it's a tricky thing, and 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 I kind of see a lot of career dilemmas through that lens. If you're a software developer, at some point, because of that kind of the value is hard to see. Like it, it becomes constraining over time. Being a software developer versus being a manager or running a business or all of those other different things. Yeah. The good news is I don't have to fight this particular battle. I will leave this in the more capable hands of somebody like Patrick McKinsey. If you know Patio Eleven on Twitter. Uh, he's really, really into the hacker news community. I've had a couple of really nice conversations with him and he's very sharp and he's very into helping developers realize the value that they provide and start thinking about pricing as if they were running their career like a business. My only recommendation there is I think that people should listen carefully to what he has to say. He will point you to other resources. I don't need to fight that battle. That's not really the one that I'm after. I, mm-hmm. I just want people to recognize this is a part of the problem where people are starting to bail out of the industry and it is solvable. It's a solvable problem. We can, if we were willing to start talking about money, the people that want to stay in this industry for 30 or 40 years will have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. You can continue to increase the value that you provide. But there's another axis to this, which I, which is, uh, I was going to say fulfillment. But what do you think? You said there were two accesses and we spent, we, you know, we've been talking, we talked about money. So yeah. the other one is. So the other one I think is technological in nature and it's our approach to technology. And it's kind of the confluence of, of technology and product where we've gotten into this 18 month cycle of like Silicon Valley startup 18 month cycle of, okay, your value is to help me get a product to market so I can start learning things as soon as possible. And then maybe we'll scale it if things go well. But you wind up torching a team every 18 months and you burn them right out. Mm-hmm. I'm actually staring at a book right now because I'm using it as a microphone stand, which explicitly suggests that that's what a management team... I wanted, also wanted to talk about that a little bit later, but it explicitly suggests that that's how companies should align themselves. I mean, you know, like if your goal is to make money with a company that you're starting, how am I to fault that? But one of the knock-on effects of that mentality is that every 18 months, we get to start a new code base from scratch. And there's very little value in maintaining something for multiple years. That's not our predominant Silicon Valley mentality that we own and maintain the things that we build. And so we've created a little bit of a cult of the new. And I mean, I don't fault this. Like I like new stuff and I like working and I like learning. Uh, whenever I've exhibited any kind of problem with this, uh, you probably noticed this, Pete, where people are like, what's your problem with learning? So I'll ask you this, Pete, have you yet felt overwhelmed by the amount of stuff you have to learn? No, it actually, I mean, I, that, that's why I wanted to do this, you know? No, I'm, I'm interested in and excited to hear this because I, I want to hear like what your take is on this and then and Noel's take as well. I want to focus this for Pete a little bit more because Pete and I, I remember very clearly having a discussion with Pete maybe about a year and a half ago where Pete was specifically trying to decide whether he wanted to learn in depth, learn Ruby in depth, or whether he wanted to branch out and learn a bunch of things like less in depth, whether he wanted to learn, want, right? Am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about that dilemma or where, what you decided on that, You know how you came to that thought and where you decided to go from there? I think I kind of ended up doing both, but I, but I don't remember deciding that. It's just, you know, I, I sort of can't help myself. I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person, you know, I, I like to work and learning new things is entertaining 
for me. Like that, that's what I like to come home and do for several hours at the end of the day. So I wasn't, I wasn't making a decision in those terms. You know, I'm, I'm kind of an idealist, which makes this whole, you know, the whole conversation that, that we were having before about, about pain and thinking about your career as a business feel really foreign to me. And I think probably to, and I think probably to a lot of developers. Yeah. It does to a lot of developers for different ways. Yeah. That's a great point. I want to push back on Pete a little bit because I'm kind of curious about this. So you learned a bunch of things early on. Mm-hmm. Well, you learned a bunch of things at Dev Bootcamp and you came here for your first job and you discovered probably not to your surprise that you still had a bunch more things to learn. Like, what was that? Like, is there, was there a moment early on where you were like, I, I had no idea what I was getting into. This is what I, I, this is what I expected to get into. Like, what did that feel like in the first couple months? Yeah, the first couple of months, the first couple of months were, I, I don't think they were so overwhelming because of the, the number of new things that I had to learn. I don't know. You get, you get the imposter syndrome, you know? Like, oh, did I just, you know, did I fool somebody into giving me this job? And, you know, and it takes a little bit to feel okay about that and to, you know, to figure out what your role is and what your, what your style of working is. You know, there are a lot of other skills too that I feel like you have to learn starting off that are not just technical skills. So like, yeah, yeah I want to, I want to come back to that in a, in a little bit, but before I jump into some of that stuff, I want to poke and prod at that a little bit. When you say other skills that what's like, what other skills and what is the purpose of learning them to your job? Learning, for instance, agile methods or whatever we want to call them, because agile is a little bit of a loaded term, I think. But, you know, thinking about, okay, I have this feature that I need to build and, you know, one, two, three, go. And then I'm like, well, wait, I don't know how to build this thing. You know, what do you do about that? And, you know, how do you, how do you make incremental progress when you're doing something that's actually new to you? And how do you break things down into concepts that are manageable? Skills like that that make it possible to then do the development. And that's the kind of thing you don't get in a boot camp because you're not normally working on projects that are large enough to have to break them down. Right. And you also are only working on projects where, you know, you, you produced all of the code. And usually you own the requirements too. At least in the Chicago DBC's biggest project, you own your requirements. Right. And, you know, you, you don't have a great concept of maintainable code either because you haven't run into a big code base that you have to maintain. And I, I want to say, like, I'm glad that you get to be idealistic about this. And I need to be careful when I position this stuff. Brandon's already had the idealism. I have. I have. I was, I was exactly, I was exactly where you are three years ago. And I want to caution you to protect that. Yeah. I can confirm that because I knew Brandon. And that was when I met Brandon. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Noel met me when I was still in the process, I think, either trying to get my first job or I had just gotten my first job as a developer. And so you haven't yet encountered, in fact, I think you got to skip the, the first existential crisis. So, uh, part of my talk is talking about like the, these, these five existential crises. And one of them is trying to break into the industry, which is unbelievably difficult. Most people struggle mightily with this. So if, if this was not like a, I don't know how it sounds like you and out of DBC got to kind of connect with uh, table XI pretty quickly. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, pretty quickly. But, it, you know, it always feels like a long time because, you know, I think for most people, job searches are just grueling. It feels like it's never going to end. It's never going to work out. But actually, in retrospect, it worked out pretty quickly and smoothly. And, you know, you were saying in a, in a, in a blog post of yours, I think you said something about, you know, your first job or two are not going to be the things you like. You know, it's like, you know, not going to be the perfect fit for you. And in my experience, you know, I'm kind of, I've, you know, 
a charmed experience. I was really lucky that I ended up with this job in this community of people that I actually do really like and suits my style and interests really well. So for me, I feel like the harder question is, okay, well then, when is it time to move on? If I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm actually really happy doing what I'm doing. Okay. So I want to come back to that. I want to hold on to that thought for a second. Okay. So when is it time to move on? Because it's actually, that is a subset of a larger question, Mm -hmm. which is where am I going? And you're not going to know that yet. So I want to, I want to put one last bow on the conversation about this sort of being a semi pessimistic view. Cause I, I don't believe it's pessimistic, but by default, I am an optimist. I'm very optimistic about stuff, but I think I have talked to too many people that started off where you are and then 14 or 15 years from now are like, what now? Cause my, my salary has leveled off. My opportunities actually seem narrower. And the thing that kills developers that are 10 years ahead of you is this thing where you're like, I love learning new things. You actually aren't learning new things. You are learning the same thing in new languages and frameworks over and over again. And that becomes very frustrating where you see you're trying to get a community of people in this sort of cult of the new to adopt things that you knew. Like, let's say you were in small talk and you're trying to get Java people to adopt TDD. And then you go, okay, I moved to Ruby and I'm going to try to get Ruby people to adopt TDD. I'm going to move on to Node and get Node people to adopt you know, TDD. Yeah. Stop there. Don't do that. (laughs) So I work in node every day now too. So there comes a place where you start feeling like I am now, instead of like learning new things, I am learning the same thing in new ways. And, and I've talked to uh, at least a dozen developers at 15, 20, 25 years of experience who are burning out on the technical aspect of the learning new things doesn't feel new anymore. So I can talk to that a little bit, actually. My career setup is a little bit weird. I, I came out of grad school and, and through a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances, basically walked into a senior level position right out of grad school because it was 2000 and it was a web boom and the company did, it was, the company was run by people who were lovely, lovely people who had no idea how software was built. And to prove that they had no idea how software was built, they hired somebody out of grad school uh, and thought that that would give them credibility as a software shop. Like, it worked out great for all of us, at least for a couple of years, uh, until I learned enough to understand that they really didn't know what they were doing. And then I spent a, a kind of a long time not being able to get back to do the level of job that I had already held because of the amount of experience that I kind of had on paper. Uh, which was weird. But I have been in the last several years, you know, I, I really did used to change, learn new programming languages very often professionally to start using new languages professionally every year, every couple of years for most of my early career. And I haven't really done that in a while. I don't know whether it's fair to say that I've stagnated technically or whether it's fair, but I think it's more accurate to say that I've kind of pushed that impulse into other things. You know, I, I try to get better at, at architecture or at dealing with legacy systems or things like that that don't feel like I'm learning a new language or learning a new technique or getting better at running a software team or... Yeah, didn't you do HR for a while? Yeah, I did HR for a while and, and largely learned that that didn't work out as well as some of the other things. But I do, it do sometimes feel weird. It does sometimes feel weird to me that I've gone a very, very long time without becoming professionally proficient in a new language, without needing to become professionally proficient in a new language. And that does feel kind of strange to me. I think that actually is probably the, the optimal case. I think you're, what you're describing to me is a healthy career from everything I can tell. Um, because what I, what I think, what I see from people that I see that are frustrated is often they feel that it's incumbent upon them 
to pick up the new thing. And that the people who have been doing this for one to two years who haven't burned out on that yet are the people that have the, that are actually more advantageously positioned. I also haven't looked for a job in a while. We'll see what happens if I, you know, if I ever wound up having to do that. I mean, the last time I looked for a job, which was, you know, four years ago now, I was getting into the situation where I was too expensive for some places to hire that otherwise would have been interested because they, you know, which is a, another way I think that money filters people out of the right at the top end. And it's also a cult of the new thing a little bit too. Yeah. So anyway, this is not by Pete, this is not by way of beating the optimism out of you. I'm saying <laughs> there's, no, there no. is some arming <laughs> yeah. that people need to do. They need to arm themselves against this eventuality that this merry-go-round is really fun and, and, and grab it and write it as for all that it will take you, but recognize at some point the, and, and the things that you will learn in the first five to 10 years of your career. And this is actually what Alan said. The first 15 years of his career was learning how to program. And so enjoy that. That's a really enjoyable ride. I think what happens is a lot of people hit that point where they go, okay, I've learned how to program. Now what? And what happens with companies is they go, I don't really know what to do with you other than to put you in the same room with other, other programmers and pay you about what you were making five years ago. Cause I don't know how to quantify that. And so I want people to arm themselves financially to have that conversation. Um, but more importantly, I think I want people to arm themselves with the knowledge of where they want to go. And so the other thing Alan told me that was kind of transformative to me that this, this not even a metaphor, it was literal. They would be handed this big broad sheet when they showed up at these big companies 30, 40 years ago. And it would say your career at, you know, XYZ Corp. And it has this, this career track list of here is what the software development track is or the software engineering track at, you know, XYZ Corp. I worked at Motorola about 10 years ago and they had something very similar. So it, yeah, they, they, uh, some people will define that very clearly. Here are the requirements. Here they are categorized in rows and then leveled in columns. And as you traverse these levels, I, I'm just curious, like, in your example, what does that career path look like? You're a developer, you get paid X. You're still a developer, you get you get paid more. Later, you're a manager. <laughs> the Motorola version was something like there was something like twelve grades of employee or something like that. And, and and what it was was in order to move from grade five to grade six, you have to have X years of experience, proficiency in Y Z and whatever a recommendation from a manager. Whatever. And then once you get in there, you're eligible for this salary range and, and, and whatever. I will say that every small company that I've seen that have tried to do that, and almost every small company I've seen that's tried to put something like that together, and it always turns out to be a colossal waste of time. Um, so I just pasted something into chat that you, you can put into show notes, but it's basically what Alan pointed me to. And it's an example of something, and I've seen, I've seen the actual, the actual paperwork. So I did a fair bit of research for the, for the talk, and I got to talk to people from a lot of different companies, and the ones that don't explicitly reject the idea of leveling, like Netflix, where you just show up and you get paid well, and you do your work and that's the end of it. The companies that have leveling to it all kind of do it similarly. And it looks like this grid that you can see in the notes. It's both specific in terms of like, here are the levels and this is what we expect to be at those levels. But then you actually read them and they read like works under general supervision, follows established procedures, work is reviewed for soundness of technical judgment, overall adequacy and accuracy. So it's like pretty rough definition that leaves a still a big air gap between somebody's opinion and what you actually, you know, level somebody up as, but at least it's a, it's the beginnings of a guide to say, Hey, this is something that you could work on. And if you got better at this, uh, you're likely to qualify as the next level of developer. And so I'm not saying that these things are great. 
I'm saying they used to give people a sense of context as to where they are on their roadmap as a developer, and they could kind of measure themselves against something. And what what I'm hoping people uh, will do, and and if I had like one big next community project, it would be creating a toolkit for people to develop this for themselves to say, hey, here are the broad categories. And this is why when, when you look back at my post about 12 traits of a, of a developer, those 12 traits are the things that certainly running a consultancy wound up being the things that mattered the most. And I would like to see a broader definition. Like when you said, you know, breaking problems down into smaller chunks, that was a critical piece of the puzzle that I don't think was represented well in those 12 traits. So seeing something that is more generally applicable uh, that people can create a toolkit and say, here is what I want to pursue, at least right now in my career. Here's what I want to get better at. And this is approximately, so you asked the question earlier, how do I know when it's time to bounce out? Here is approximately, you can actually sit down with Noel and have this negotiation and say, here is where I want to go. Where does the road run out here? And he may say, I honestly can tell you, we can get you here. And that could take you 10 years. Like you could actually have a really amazing 10 year plus career here, or you could be here for the rest of your life. We have a road that leads all the way there. Or it might be like we had at Frontside where I knew where somebody was going and I knew that the road ended for them 18 months from then. Like, hey, you got about an 18 month clock here. Yeah. We've had that conversations with people, not so much in development, but we've had that conversations with, we've had those kinds of conversations here where it's like, yes, um, you, the thing that you're growing into is not something that we have a role for. Um, let's see if we can help you with what the next piece of that would be. And that's, you know, it's bittersweet at best, but. But it's better than having people there that are quietly frustrated and not able to put a voice to that frustration. Quietly frustrated. I'd rather have loudly frustrated than quietly frustrated, honestly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, y'all are really good at handling one-on-ones and keeping communication going. And these are all things that, and setting these kind of goals. I think the company that you, that you work with is uniquely, is sort of unique in this. Um, most companies don't put this much thought into this process or to put those definitions around it for people or defining those goals. Pete, I have to imagine you don't yet know unless you are, you're the person with two years of experience that has, you know, the most amazing ability to see the future. Is it safe to say you don't really know where this is all taking you yet? Or do you have a sense of what that is? Oh, no, not at all. So in your first couple of years, when people are like, where do you see yourself five years from now? That question is stupid. But when, when you get to Noel's stage, that question becomes relevant. Because you're starting to think in terms of like how much career you have I, left. Okay. <laughs> That's a really tragic Thanks. way of putting Thanks, it. Brandon. I, I, I feel great now. Uh, I, you know, I, I actually, I actually, I, I still hate that question. Honestly, I, I have no idea where I'm going to be in five years. And, and I probably, but I probably would be better off if I had a good idea. Um, but everything great that's happened in my career has happened by like surprise and accident. So. It's serendipity in large part. Well, you know, and then there's a certain amount of like design serendipity. Like you put yourself in a situation to hope that something good happens and, and eventually something might. Yeah. What would be something like relatively concrete that you would suggest that Pete or anybody who might hear this, who's in like their first few years of programming, like what, what kinds of things should they be trying to do? So when I, when I wrote down the 12 traits, these were like 12 relatively concrete things. And I don't want to like go over all of them, but it'll be in show notes. Yeah. I'll just say the ones that get neglected the most are the ways that you can have an outsized impact on your organization. I think what most people think about when they think about the traits of what qualifies somebody as a senior developer, they think in terms of technical capability. And that is great. You know, like uh, uh, staying curious, adopting new technologies and not being afraid to explore new things, not being afraid to tackle really hard problems and break them down, the ability to actually execute and get something shipped. All of those things are great. They're also the same field everybody is competing in. 
if you're trying to kind of stand out and move forward in your career in a field of people that are all kind of focused on the same thing, you can pick a different area of focus. Um, my experience is that people that round themselves out with skills that don't appear to be directly technical are ones that can produce value that uh, you can start quantifying pretty quickly uh, where people are really good at documentation. You know, if people put extra focus on, hey, I'm going to focus on documentation. A person on my team at Frontside, Alex, put a ton of focus this year into improving the quality of pull requests for our team and is starting to go around and evangelize this idea of here's what a quality pull request looks like. Like that is a platform he can actually use to help improve teams across the industry. And he, you know, he's a really technical person. He's a, he's brilliant technically, but the, the, some of the biggest impact he's had on our team is getting us to think more critically about the way that we share code and ask for feedback with each other. That's kind of like uh, saying that the way to become a 10 X engineer is to make five other people, two X engineers. Yeah. That's uh, it's the only formula I can, you know, there are people that can code 10 times as fast as other people. But, you know, that's like saying there are people that can run at Olympic levels. Like, I will never be the Usain Bolt of code. I just have to, you know, I have to be, I have to be like, that's, I'm going back and I'm re-recording the introduction to say, we have on the panel, Brandon Hayes, the Usain Bolt. That is just not going to be me unless I start doping somehow. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> just too much caffeine, and then I actually can't code. Yeah, programmers dope with caffeine, right? Yeah. I just get I just get shaky at a certain point. So I would say, like, it depends on things that you kind of lean toward already, like things that you find fascinating in addition to the technical aspects of things. And this stuff will emerge naturally. The first five to ten years of your career, if you just focus on the technical aspects of things and that's what fascinates you, far be it from me to take that away. But you can add additional value if you're thinking in terms of other things that fascinate you. If things around owning larger and larger chunks of a piece of a product, like, hey, I'd actually like to work more directly with the, the product owner here and the designers and start, you know, owning larger and larger chunks of product work and see if I can deliver and kind of take the lead on something. And if that tickles your fancy, maybe, you know, that you lean toward the leadership track and you may have a, a leadership things that can enhance you as a developer, or that doesn't, you know, maybe some people really just don't like that kind of stuff, but they do like collaborating with other people and they wind up acting in a team lead capacity where they want to take a crack at getting a team to pull together toward a common goal or just being a good listener. There are lots of different things that people can work on. I tried to break them into 12 traits, but those are just the 12 that that seem to matter to me as the owner of a consultancy the most. I think each business needs to look at the the things that matter to them and sit down and talk with people that are at the newer end of the spectrum and try to come up with what they could develop that would make them more uniquely valuable, not just within that organization, but beyond that. So I have 12 starter ideas. I would love to see more get thrown into the mix. And that seems like a we're, we're kind of at our time more or less here. And I wanted to, to see have people uh, leave with another resource for people to check out, uh, a concrete suggestion that people can take away uh, and apply to this stuff. Brandon, do you have a resource or a really concrete suggestion that? I would say th it's sad that this is the best I can do, but I would say that uh, there is a really great couple of blog posts out there about this that's pretty well known about what constitutes a senior developer. It ha is a different take than mine, but it's just as valid, if not more so. It's really good. And I would say the other thing is to please befriend, find and befriend a software developer with 20 to 25 or more years of experience. 
do whatever you can to reach out to somebody with that level of experience. Because after I had worked in this industry for six or seven years, I had a perspective, completely perspective altering conversation over the course of a 45 minute conversation with somebody with 45 years of experience. If you can have that one meaningful conversation with somebody with that much more experience than you, I, I feel like you're going to have lots of access to people within your zone of proximal development. That's great. Uh, but finding somebody that's that wildly more experienced than you is more rare and more difficult, and it's worth seeking out. Pete, do you have uh, someplace that you'd point somebody or, or, or something that you would recommend people do, or something that you did that you found really helpful? I feel like that's a really hard question. It is, you know, I, 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 this is like my standard setup for the end of this thing. And I did have a really hard time coming up with, I think that's almost a symptom of the problem is that we're all having a really hard time coming up with places for people to look. Right. To think about. Yeah. Because like I was saying, I feel like so far, all you know, what I've done is keep following my interest and the things that I'm attracted to. And up until this point, that's worked out really well for me. So, you know, I don't think it's quite good advice to say, yeah, do that and keep feeling like that's going to turn out really well. But that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you guys for being on the, the show. The Tech Done Right podcast is brought to you by TableXI, a UX design and software development company in Chicago. We are 35 meticulous and curious minds with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Let's work together. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. Thanks to Pete and Brandon for talking with me today. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of the Tech Done Right podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Noel. Bye. Thank you. 